0: That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500.
1: Five, four, three, two, one.
0: But who's counting, right?
1: His name is Major.
0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Major Garrett from the nation's capital.
1: Major,
2: fantastic. It's the takeout.
0: This is a major achievement. With
2: CBS News Chief Washington correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes.
3: Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. Man, are we in a great place? I'm telling you, one of the best places this show has ever been. The National Mall, in Washington, D.C. Sweet Home Cafe is our location, which is in. The National Museum of African-American History and Culture, Lonnie Bunch, is with us. He's the founding director of this museum. He's also the 14th director of the Smithsonian Institution.
1: Lonnie, it's great to see you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for being here.
3: And as you can see, watching on Paramount Plus and CBS News streaming, lunch has arrived. We'll deal with that in due course. mm -hmm. Collard greens, macaroni and cheese, fried chicken, cornbread. What else are we going to have in Sweet Home Cafe? And and Diet Iced Tea. Right, 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 exactly. (laughs) And black coffee for me. Lonnie, a couple of general questions about the Smithsonian itself.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
3: Those of us who live in Washington, D.C., hear about climate change and we hear about the tidal basin and rising, and a big thing going on about water intrusion into the National Mall Mm -hmm. and the jeopardy that maybe the Smithsonian Museums here are in as related to that. What can you tell us?
1: Well, the reality is that the battling climate change is really going to be a national issue Mm -hmm. um, and the mall is subject. What we did though when we built the National Museum of African American History and Culture, we used the state-of-the-art technology. So we can, I learned more about slurry walls and pumps so to make sure this is protected. And what we've done in other museums is made sure that we've removed artifacts from lower level. We have people that are ready to help whenever there's an emergency. So in some ways, like the rest of the world, we're touched by climate change, but we're ready to handle
3: it. And mitigating it as best as you possibly can. As best as we can. What is the state of the Smithsonian museums in Washington, D.C., post-COVID?
1: Well, the Smithsonian is the greatest gift to the world, and that we have now returned to significant visitation. I think we're about 75% of where we once were. Um, You know, we, we usually average, oh, 30 to 40 million visitors a year. And so we're getting, we're getting about 25 to million visitors. So we're getting there, but it's slowly coming back. And that's really crucially important for us.
3: How difficult was COVID for you and the Smithsonian?
1: COVID was a challenge because one, my overwhelming goal was to keep everybody safe, mm-hmm. was to perfect staff, Um, protect the visitors. And, you know, I started out being known as the guy that um, built the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Now I'm known as the guy that closed the Smithsonian twice, right? Right. Right. And so I think the notion of closing the Smithsonian was really a challenge. But I'm very proud of the fact that what it forced us to do was to think about how we serve the audiences who can't come in. Mm -hmm. It allowed us to do much more with digital, much more with virtual. And so in a way, it's going to serve us in good, going forward.
3: very good. The National Museum of African American History and Culture is your great contribution to America and its museums. No one disputes that. It's 11-year part of your life. I've just finished reading your book, A Fool's errand about that journey. Near the end of the book you talk about the number of visitors that this museum attracts on a daily basis. You were planning for around four thousand. It's routinely eight thousand. On some days, it can be eleven thousand. That's the good part of the story. Right. What's the challenging part of that? The reality? challenging
1: part is that we had to do something that I didn't want to do was create pass system, because what we wanted to make sure is that the visitor had the best experience possible. And I did want people to feel kind of crowded as they went down below and understood the slave experience. But on the whole, what I really wanted to make sure is that people could come through and take the time to learn, to educate, to grapple with things. And so that's what's really happening.
3: And there are statistics about dwell time, which is a concept I wasn't familiar with, probably should have been. Museums have dwell time. From your book, I learned that the average dwell time in a Smithsonian museum is roughly 90 minutes. But here,
1: Here, it's it's three to four hours. It's four hours, sometimes five hours. And that, in essence, what I find fascinating is that people not only read everything, but they really talk about it. I see them bringing family and friends and children to talk about this history. And so what's happened is it's become a reservoir that the public can dip into to understand something it didn't know about and boy are they dipping into it and
3: also a statistic i came across near the tail end of the book a fool's errand about a third of the visitors who come to this museum have never been to any museum before in their lives
1: I think that the notion of introducing new people to cultural institutions is crucially important. And what I think has been a direct result is as a result of this museum, you find many museums of African-American culture around the country having greater visitation, getting more attention. So in some ways, we wanted to make sure that if we built a museum in Washington, it would be successful here, but it would also have a ripple effect around the country, and that's what's happened.
3: You write in the book that you hope that this museum, the National Museum of African American History and Culture, can make this country better.
1: Can a museum do that? I believe strongly that museums are the the glue that holds a country together, but they're also the best place where adults go to learn, right? So people have continual learning. So what I wanted was, because it's the Smithsonian, People trust the Smithsonian, they come to the Smithsonian. What I really wanted was for people to be able to sort of go through this, learn, be changed. And I think that if you can change people, then you can make them better. You
3: mentioned the Smithsonian. You also write in the book that the Smithsonian wasn't ready for this museum. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, you think about when I started. I came back from Chicago. This was my sort of third time at the Smithsonian. And all of a sudden, they gave me offices over in what is now La Fonte Plaza, a hotel near here. And when I went to go there, there was suddenly, the door was locked. And I knocked on the door, nobody let me in. I went down to the front desk, said, I'm the new director of this museum, I'd like to get in. And they said, we don't know who you are, we're not going to let you in. So then I went down to security, and I said, come on, you know, I gave them the, come on, brother, you know, let me in, right? And the guy said... You might steal something. And I'm like, what am I going to steal from an empty office? So we go back, and I had a staff of two in those days. And so all I did was sort of stand there, and then a man came by with a maintenance truck and had a crowbar. So I used the crowbar and broke in. And so in essence, it made me realize that the Smithsonian wasn't ready for us. I'm not sure I was ready. But that, in essence, I wasn't sure America was ready. But in essence, by breaking in, we realize we're going to get there. It just may take a little more time.
3: Lonnie, listening to you tell that story, it feels almost like, in that moment, the human symbolic representation of doors locked in front of African Americans for 400 years.
1: I think that's right. I think that what this was, was breaking into those doors that have been closed for so long. And that what it is, is that it was shining a light, not just on black America, but on America. And I think that's the greatest strength of this, that this was really framed not to be a museum that said, this is for black people by black people. But rather to say that black culture is too important to be in the hands of just black people. That in some ways it's a quintessential American story. And so we really wanted people to be changed. I wanted people to cry, um, be angry. But I also wanted to find the joy and the resiliency that's in this community.
3: We'll get back to the crying and anger in a second. One of the other things you write in your book is that the museum hierarchy in America has almost always been white. Talk about that.
1: I don't know how many times I've integrated museums, meetings throughout my career, and what I realized is they were really gifted people, better than me, who didn't get a chance because they were black to run these museums, to be the head curator. So I used my career recognizing that it wasn't about me. It was about opening doors for others, trying to make sure that we had leadership, curatorial and it was also crucially important that it wasn't just bringing in people of color it was basically hiring a diverse team and making sure regardless of who you are you understood this culture that you were shaped by the culture whether you were white italian i whatever and so my goal was to make sure that we would be a symbol of what is possible in this country whether it's by the kind of staff we had, whether it's kind of the the success we've had. The goal was to recognize that this was the Smithsonian. So this gave you a chance to do something that you might not be able to do in other places.
3: A symbol of what is possible. That's Lonnie Bunch. I'm Major Garrett. We're at Sweet Home Cafe in the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. Back for segment two
0: in just one second. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett.
3: Welcome back to one of the best meals I've had in Washington, D.C. here at the Sweet Home Cafe in the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Lonnie Bunch, the 14th secretary of the Smithsonian Institution, is our very special guest. The meal is fantastic. Talk to me about this cafe, what it represents, how it is for those who are here enjoying it. All the happy sounds you hear around us, ladies and gentlemen. Our people around Lunch Hour on a Tuesday having a great time. What's this cafe about?
1: Well, several things. First of all, um, the cafe was really my desire to continue the interpretation of African-American culture. I felt that food is so important to every culture, um, but especially to African-American culture. And so what I wanted you to be able to do was to get regional cuisine, get good southern fried chicken, or get some northern fish, and so that in essence this was really framed as a way to extend the interpretation of culture. And even the name, um, you know, initially we were going to call it something like the North Star Cafe. All those were copyrighted. And so <laughs> literally it came to us today. I had to make a decision for signage. And I remember thinking, what am I going to call this thing? Couldn't come up with a name. And then I remember a friend of mine, when I became president of the Chicago Stork Society, phoned me and sang Sweet Home Chicago. So I thought, that's the name, Sweet Home and it really is more, and it's, it's almost more appropriate, because this is home. Mm-hmm. I want you to feel home. The tables are such that you interact with other people, and that I wanted you to feel like this was a place that you could call home.
3: We talked about this in the first segment. There's reason to cry here. There's reason to be angry. In this cafe, there are lunch counters represented. Talk to me about that decision.
1: You know... My youngest daughter is much smarter than I am, and as I was telling her about what I wanted to do with the food, she said, but extend the interpretation. She said, what about the lunch counter? And it was her idea to create a lunch counter at the back end of this, and so I was—I see people going in and realizing that they can sit at a lunch counter, whereas 50 years ago, they couldn't. They could not. Um, and I'm and al- if they
3: did, they were abused.
1: Well, I was always struck. You know, I collected the Greensboro lunch counter when I was a curator of American history, and... One of the reasons it meant so much to me is I remember being six years old, going to Raleigh, North Carolina to visit relatives. And I, growing up in New Jersey, I love Woolworths. I thought it was the coolest place to go. So I see a Woolworths. I'm running in front of my aunt and my grandmother, and I run in, and I sit down Mm -hmm. at a Woolworths. And these white hands pick me up, move me over to the Jim Crow section. And I've never forgotten how horrible that felt. So the irony then, you know, 40 years later, I get to collect the lunch counter in Greensboro was really justice. And so for me, so much of what my career has been, has been personal, is how do I make sure nobody feels that hurt? How do I make sure people understand their history? How do I make sure people feel that this is the story that has touched us all in profound ways?
3: And you can be in this cafe and you can sit at that lunch counter and feel a range of emotions.
1: Right. Well, we wanted people in the restaurant and throughout the museum to feel emotion. The notion was that if you came through this and you grazed or you didn't stop Mm -hmm. or you didn't feel emotion, then we failed because this is about emotion and people and prosperity and hope. And so for me, what I think I wanted to do was you sit down in this cafeteria. And you think about what you saw, and I hope what it does is inspire new generations of activists mm-hmm. to help people say, I too can make a country better.
3: And there are pictures in this cafe of the food journey in America. There's music that is familiar to anyone who understands or appreciates rap or r and or Motown or anything like that. It's a full uh, audio experience Absolutely. as well as a place to have a great meal.
1: Well, the goal is to create a space that is learning, but is also fun. Um, and nobody can't smile when you come in and have a great meal. And that's the goal.
3: That's one of the goals of the takeout, by the way. That's the a- reason I have a conversation over meal is I've always believed, and it's one of the things that it's at the heart of the origins of this show, is that every conversation is better when you're eating.
1: Absolutely. Every Absolutely. conversation is better.
3: It is more natural. It is more honest. Yep. And I deal with a lot of people in Washington who, let us say, have... A evolving relationship with honesty. Oh, I like and, that. And I believe that food helps get you closer to who you actually are.
1: I agree, I agree. I always argue that. There are so many people in Washington that have such respect for the truth that they rarely use it. So,
3: uh, <laughs> Yes, they keep a really respectful distance from it. One thing I want to let our audience know, because we had the conversation before we started, in a way, this is James Hemming's cafe, is it not?
1: Yeah, this is really, James Hemming was really one of the first great chefs trained... Tell my audience um, who James Hemming you know. is. Oh, he is Sally Hemming's brother. Sally Hemming's, um, the paramour, if you will, of Thomas Jefferson. Yes. Um, and in many ways, what this cafe cafeteria reminds us is that there are so many people whose stories, whose cuisine, we never know. And this is our way of just saying there's more to learn.
3: The macaroni and cheese that you and I are both enjoying springs from the creative genius of James Hemings. That's right. There's a great documentary I urge my audience to watch. If you don't know anything about James Hemings, learn about him. Thomas Jefferson took him to France while he was there. While he was there, he was trained by French chefs. He came back to America when Thomas Jefferson became president. Yep. He asked James Heming to be his chef, but he would not send him a direct letter. Right. James Hemming said, if you will send me a direct letter, Mr. President, I will consider it. But Thomas Jefferson could not yeah. find it within himself yeah. to send a direct letter mm-hmm. to James Hemings. We are in... To my way of thinking, ladies and gentlemen, James Hemming's Cafe.
1: That's right. Well, what for me, it's James Hemming's Cafe. It's a great-grandmother who will, I'll never know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really anybody who once realized that eating a meal gave them cover from the world that they were dealing with. And so for me, this is a way for after you go through a really interesting museum, it gives you cover to relax and to really enjoy and to chat with each other. And for anyone
3: who has a cook... To use a phrase you see frequently in this museum, made a way out of no way.
1: Absolutely. Um, made a way out of no way is Meaning li-
3: with limited means, limited variety of food.
1: And and really meaning that you find creative ways to survive. You find creative ways to create food, to find political rights, to get education. So for to me to yourself to th- make a living? Yep, the theme of this museum is. The amazing ability of people to make a way out of nowhere, to draw that line from the Bible and recognizing that their success is believing in the better day, believing in a tomorrow that you can't see.
3: I want to tell people uh, I had the chance to go through the museum very recently. It is a place of enormous heaviness and unbelievable lightness. That would be my one sentence description of this museum. And I've never really felt that range of emotions in any other museum I've been to. So let's start on that conversation. If you come here, you're invited to go down. And when you go down to the basement of this museum, what do you find, Lonnie Bunch?
1: We felt that. The number one thing people told me they wanted to talk about and learn was slavery. And the number one thing they didn't want to talk about was slavery. So we decided that we would begin this journey in the area of slavery. Because that's really the foundational moment of the world and really the foundational moment of the United States. So you come down and you suddenly understand what Africa was like before Europe, Europe was like before the slave trade, and then you're in it. And for me, one of the most important things was finding relics of a slave ship. I went around the world because most slave ships are at the bottom of the ocean. And literally, um, I tried to negotiate with the Castros for two years, didn't get anywhere. A former friend of mine, former student, called and said, we may have a ship in, um, that sank off the coast of Cape Town, the Sao Jose from Lisbon. We found it. We began to dig it up. Then I realized I needed to go to Mozambique to see the Makua people. That's 512 were on the boat. And when I went to Mozambique, the chief gave me a vessel wrapped in cowrie shells. And he said, when you go back to the site of the wreck, please purr this dirt over the site. So for the first time since 1795, my people can sleep in their own land. And I thought to myself, this is why they're paying me to do this. It was one big moving. And then what happens is you walk through the exhibit and you realize that rather than the way we were all taught, the Puritans, Jamestown. I said, it's really about how slavery shaped colonial America. So you see how slavery shaped New York or New England or the Carolinas, and it's tight. And I wanted you to feel that sense of yes. you know fighting for your freedom. But then what you do is you basically realize that you come out and you actually talk about freedom. Mm-hmm. And you see... Thomas Jefferson and you see the words of the founding fathers and you suddenly realize that's what this is about. It's about demanding a country live up to its stated ideals through the lens of those that were once denied.
3: That's the voice of Lonnie Bunch, our special guest. We are at the Sweet Home Cafe in the National Museum of African-American History and Culture, segment three, coming your way. <sighs>
0: From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major
3: Garrett. The meal is great. The atmosphere is great. The museum is great. Are you following me? you catching up with the greatness of what I'm experiencing here? Yes. Lonnie Bunch is our special guest. I'm Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout for the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Uh, tell my audience who Mamie Till Mobley is.
1: <sighs> Mamie Till Mobley was the mother of Emmett Till. Who was a young child who was brutally murdered in 1955. And I was president of the Chicago Historic Society, and I was very close to Studs Turkle, the great oral historian. Mm-hmm. And so one day, Studs came to my office, and as always did, and he said, You want to meet somebody? I said, Sure. He goes, You have met Emmett Till's mother? I go, I didn't know she was still alive. She came into my office. I'll never forget this tiny woman. We were going to have an hour lunch. She spoke for seven hours about what happened to her from the time she kissed her son goodbye until he, was, until he was buried. And so I became so enamored with her that I basically wrote about her for the newspapers in Chicago. When I came back here, she had since passed, and I said, I want to tell the story. But then what happened is that the casket was discovered, basically he was disinterred, um, put in a new casket, and the old casket was supposed to be preserved, and it wasn't. And the family called me and said, what can we do? And I thought, well, should I collect a cask? Isn't it kind of ghoulish? So at first I said I will collect it and preserve it, but never show it. But then when we were doing the museum, I thought of Mamie Till saying to me, for 50 years she carried the burden of remembering Emma Till, and it was my turn. And so... We crafted an exhibition that was really about the funeral because I really didn't want it to be just about the broken body of Emma Till. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to be the courage of this woman who basically, at the worst moment of her life, used that to inspire people to fight for civil rights and fairness.
3: And, and for my audience, Lonnie, just briefly remind them of the decision she made about...
1: What she did, the reason why we kept the casket
3: was in his casket.
1: She decided that she had to have an open casket because she wanted the world to see what they did to her son, and that courage. Oh, was was horrible, and that courage—the fact that it was then published in a black newspaper and then it began it over the world—it really rejuvenated the civil rights movement. And I would argue, so much of the change of the fifties and sixties started from that moment of her courage.
3: And as you put this museum together and as people experience it, there is that very harsh juxtaposition of agony and possibility. That is the story, isn't it?
1: It is the tension between pain and resiliency, right? It's the tension between unbelievable obstacles and unbelievable, unshaking faith in a better day. And so what I really wanted was implicit in what I wanted to try to do was to tell people that don't run away from this history. Dip into this history like a reservoir of hope. And that if you could be as strong as the people we've talked about in this museum, you can help change a nation as well. That was my goal.
3: And you don't want people to walk through this museum wearing a cloak of shame,
1: do you? No, no. The goal was to look at a world we made together. We look at people who cross racial lines to demand change. We look at the impact of African-American culture on all of us. All of us tap our toes to James Brown or some rap music. And the goal was not to find guilt or assess blame. The goal was to say, if America is the home of the brave, are we brave enough to face our history? And if we are, then we can learn from it. Because for me, this is an optimistic, a hopeful history. Because these are people whose efforts helped America live up to its stated ideals. And what's wrong with that?
3: There's a a part of the book that I came across that I found very interesting that speaks to this larger inspirational dynamic of the African-American experience in America. You were in some country in Scandinavia, unnamed, in a somewhat remote area. And someone mentions, do you know who Al Green is?
1: Yep. Tell in, me that story. I was in northern Sweden, okay. and I was meeting with some of the Sami people, the leaders of that tribe that we used to call Laplanders. But saying. and so I'm sitting there, and the chief threw a translator. I'm sitting under a reindeer tent, and I'm thinking, "How's the kid from Jersey doing? What am I doing here?" And he said to me, "Are you an American?" I said, "Yes." He said, "Do you know Al Green?" <laughs> and I said, "You mean Al Green, he said, Al Green the music?" And I was to myself. If African American culture is here, it's gotta be all over the world. And so of course I call Al Green when I get back, right? Mm. Al, they heard about you in, in, you know, Sweden. He goes, of course.
3: <laughs> Talk to me about the building itself. Why is it shaped the way it is? What is the importance of water in its relationship to the building and the corona?
1: Building on a national mall is one of the greatest challenges. Partly because um, it's where the world comes to learn what it means to be an American. And I wanted it to be a place where it was symbolic. So, several things. First of all, when you come into this, when you walk to this building, you notice it's a darker tint. Right? I want it's a bronze corona because I wanted people to realize there's always been a dark presence in America that was often underappreciated or overlooked. So I wanted on the National Mall for there to always be this symbol. Right. Right? And then what I realized is that I wanted the museum to be a signature green museum. So it was the first green museum of the Smithsonian. And when I brought the great designers, David Ajay and Phil Freelon and Max Bond, I said I need something that's going to speak of spirituality, uplift and resiliency. So they create a corona that's tilted up. Mm -hmm. um, And their argument is that it came from uh, a Yoruba post that was made in that shape. I said it came from a picture I saw of black women whose hands were in prayer at this angle. Mm -hmm. So regardless of the origin story, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it really is about looking up. And then Um, the initial notion was was going to be solid bronze. Well, you can't have solid bronze. So the architects were going to just punch holes in it. And I said, I'm paying too much money to punch holes. So I went down to New Orleans, took pictures of the ironwork in New Orleans and Charleston. The architects then put that over the entire filigree of the building. So what the building is, not only is it a symbol of presence, but it also says there's so much in America that was built by people who will never know, And here's my way of saying thank you.
3: Has anyone said to you it looks to them like a ship?
1: I've heard people say it looks like a ship. I've heard people say it looks like the crown. Mm -hmm. I've heard people say it looks like a hat. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's great because I want people to bring their own view to it. But the goal was that this was going to be a place that was helping America to remember no matter what. And as long as there's an America, that building will be there.
3: Back to the beginnings of our conversation about the basement of the museum and the slave trade. What you learn is it was essential to Europe first and America second.
1: Well, what we, what you learn is that, first of all, the slave trade shaped the world. It is what led to the modern Portugal, Spain, UK. And so what we wanted was people to understand that this wasn't a black story. This was the first international business um, and then if you look at the world where the enslaved went, they've changed dramatically Brazil, the United States, the Caribbean. So I wanted people to understand that Europe is still grappling with it. In fact, I just got back from Portugal last week. And part of my go- job there was to sort of talk to people about why Portugal needs to understand its slave past how that has opened doors for so many. And so for me, this was an opportunity to help people realize that this is a story that is the shaped the world. Mm-hmm.
3: There is a train car in the museum. Talk to my audience about Pullman
1: Porters. Well, when I wanted to do this museum, I knew I needed to deal with the railroad. And so one of the most important stories are the Pullman Porters. These were people who basically went around the country serving white people on the trains. But they also became the people who spread the word about you can go to California and not have to deal with Jim Crow segregation. So they were crucially important. So I wanted to tell that story. And I actually had a a friend who I knew from my time in American history who basically collected train cars. And he said, I've got a train car um, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, if you'd come. So I go, and there is this ratty car. It's rusting, and but it turned out it was a Jim Crow railroad car. That the front part were for whites, and the back part for blacks, and that it was in essence a car that helped me interpret that story. And so we basically cut a deal, and I spent so much time bringing it together, getting it ultimately to Washington.
3: Got it to Washington. It's part of the National Museum of African American History and Culture. I'm Major Garrett. Lonnie Bunch is our special guest. Sweet Home Cafe is provider of a fantastic lunch. Back for segment four in just a second.
5: Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are.
0: From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett.
3: Lunch is still epic. The museum is still epic. Lonnie Bunch, epic also. Lonnie, uh, I want to ask you about some contemporary issues right now, Mm -hmm. dealing with history and the instruction thereof. Mm -hmm. In Florida, the Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, has essentially moved to eliminate certain forms of what he calls biased or... Agenda-driven education out of Florida high schools. How do you evaluate that? How do you watch that play out?
1: To me, it's very disturbing because if an agenda-driven history is a complete history, a history that really helps us understand all the dark corners of our experience, it helps us understand that the country that we are was shaped by many people who demanded it live up to its stated ideal. If that's a gender-driven history, I love a gender-driven history. I think my concern is that we should be brave enough to recognize that these stories, whether they're African-American, Latino, Asian-American, or really immigrant history generally, these are stories that have difficult moments. But they're stories that profoundly made this country who it is. And so my concern is how to make sure teachers at the primary level, at the secondary level, have the courage, but also the cover to be able to tell these stories. That's the biggest fear.
3: And when you hear politicians like Ron DeSantis or others suggest or say directly that critical race theory is Marxist, what do you think?
1: I don't even know what critical race theory is they talk about. What I argue is if you tell good, accurate history, you're going to tell stories that are challenging. But yet the other thing that, that I think some people don't realize is what comes out of those challenges is change, is optimism, is hope. And that in some ways, I would argue that what they forget is that America has always been a work in progress. And that in essence, the nation changes based on the way people push and believe, but they all try to strive with the, to our founding ideals. So for me, it's troubling that there is a fear of our past.
3: You say in the book, and this museum is quite obviously dedicated to the proposition, that you can tell a lot about a nation by what it remembers and also what it tries to forget. This appears to me to be a place to fill in that forget part of America.
1: I think that's absolutely right. I'm always struck that um, if a nation forgets, it's almost like saying we're comfortable as people knowing that our grandfather or grandmother's DNA shaped us. But we're not comfortable recognizing that the history that shaped them shapes us. Right. And so, in a way, all I'm saying is forgetting really means that you are not understanding half of who you are. Mm-hmm. And my goal is help understanding, help America understand itself because by finding that understanding, my hope is you find hope. And you find a change that makes America different. Let me be honest. You know, I'm old enough to remember Jim Crow, right? I'm mm-hmm. old enough to have been called names I hated to be called. Um, And you tell me that that's not important for people to know um, because I look at that and say, but look how we've changed. Um, And so for me, this is all about how do you help a country change itself, live up to its ideals.
3: I may not uh, articulate this properly, Lonnie, but it seems to me that if you grew up in this country black, you always had to understand white America. But you didn't always, as a white person, have to understand black America. And it seems to me one of the things this museum tries to do say to white America, to understand yourself, you must understand black America. Exactly.
1: I mean, I think that's really the key. I mean, there's this notion, uh, you know, black people were taught you got to be twice as good to get half as far, right? And so part of it is saying that we had to understand how to fit in, right? Um, you know, I grew up in a town that was overwhelmingly Italian, so I grew up speaking Sicilian, right? You know, you, you want to sort of find ways to fit in, but you also then want to find ways to say... Nobody else is going to have to experience the same thing I experienced. So how do we how do we change the narrative? How do we express our education? And that's what this is really about.
3: Let me ask you a question related to this museum, but also to the Smithsonian writ large. What's missing?
1: Well, what's missing in this museum is Willie Mays' glove. I'd give anything for Willie Mays' <laughs> glove, okay? Let me be real honest. Uh, but I think what's missing is not so much what's missing in the Smithsonian. What's missing is... The public's understanding of the richness of the Smithsonian, the public's understanding that, you know, you saw an image of the black hole. Well, that's us. That was our our Astrophysical observatory in Cambridge. When you look at climate change, we've got all these people working on it in Panama at the Mm -hmm. Tropical Research Institute. So in some ways, what I've argued is the Smithsonian needs to be the place that helps America Um, grapple with the world it's facing. It has to be the place to give America the tools it needs. And it's not
3: that place that is sometimes clumsily, sometimes comically referred to as America's attic.
1: You know, I would argue that it's America's memory. It's America's collective understanding of science. It's America's understanding of visual creativity. So in some ways, it's not an attic because an attic suggests that it's not important. What this really suggests is this is like sitting around the dinner table, learning more about yourself, learning more about society, learning more about science. So the Smithsonian really is this gift to America. Really, it's a gift to the world to understand itself.
3: For my audience who's thinking about a trip to Washington, tell them about something within the Smithsonian complex that they think they know, but they don't really know and they would be amazed to find.
1: Well, I think one of the things that's really amazing to me is that um, I go into the Air and Space Museum and, you know, I expect to see the right flyer, etc. But you go in and suddenly you see all the things that led to the right flyer right? You don't think about that. And so there's, a, there's an unveiling within the Smithsonian about our history. And I got to be honest, I'm not a jewelry guy, but I love seeing the Hope Diamond, uh, <laughs> you know? And in some ways, the great strength of the Smithsonian is that it's got amazing art that you can't see anywhere else. It's got this sort of natural history museum that is really brilliant when it comes to helping us understand dinosaurs and the impact of climate change Mm -hmm. on dinosaurs. So I am a biggest fan, and I think the Smithsonian really is the best reservoir of possibility you can dip into.
3: Before we end on this segment, I want to read to you a quote that President Obama said about you around the time this museum opened. He talked about your wisdom, your dedication, your savvy, your ability to make people feel guilty, the begging, the deal-making and the general street smarts. What did he mean by saying, your ability to make people feel guilty?
1: It was my ability to tell a story that really would make people cry. Um, And therefore, to talk to different foundations, different corporations, to say, here's why this is important. On the one hand, it's important because I I want you to feel the joy and the pain. But on the other hand, it's important because you get a chance by supporting this museum to help make sure this country never can go back to the way it once was because that history will always be there challenging us to move forward.
3: And we've got about 20 seconds. There's tremendous youthful energy we hear around us. There's a generational impact of this place, is there not?
1: My goal is that having so many school children, having so many families come for family reunions, what it's allowing us to do is make sure that this isn't about history. It's about them. It's about what they want to do and how they can learn from this to really create new generations of people who will make a country live up to its stated ideals.
3: Voice of Lonnie Bunch, your takeout outtake of special is next. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week.
2: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Man, that sunset is gorgeous.
4: Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in.
0: CBS News. This is the Takeout with Major Garrett.
3: I'm Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial for our beloved podcast first adopters. We love you so much. We're at Sweet Home Cafe in the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Lonnie Bunch, who is the founding director of this museum and the 14th Secretary of the Smithsonian Institution, is our very special guest. For those watching on Paramount Plus, CBS News streaming, lunch continues mm. to be outstanding. Epic. So we have three threshold questions in this part of the program, Lonnie, and I can't wait to get your answers. Okay. Take these questions in any order and take as long as you need. Most influential book in your life and why? All-time favorite movie? And if you're on a long flight or a long drive and you're really going to enjoy some music, what kind of music, artist, or genre is that most likely to be?
1: Well, let me start with music. Okay. Uh, I am a Rhythm and Blues guy. I think there's no one better than Sam Cooke. Mm -hmm. Um, And my daughters to this day talk about, you've introduced me to music I never thought I'd know. And so I love to be able to tap my toes Mm -hmm. to Sam Cooke, to Aretha Franklin, to Gladys Knight. Um, That's my escape. Music has always been my escape. Mm -hmm. But film has really been, if I wasn't a historian, I'd be a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. Um, My earliest memories are, My dad was in graduate school, and he would go get back from New York to New Jersey about 10 o'clock at night. And so I'd hear him, and I'd sneak downstairs, and he was burned out, but we'd watch the million-dollar movie Mm -hmm. on Channel 9 in New York, and we'd watch old (laughs) movies. And I was amazed how he always knew the plot. I was like, how do you—I thought he was so smart. He'd seen it about five times, right? But for me, there's nothing better than movies when I— asked my wife to marry me and i said you know you have the conversation about religion children i said do you like film yeah. because if you don't like film we're not gonna make it we're not right? gonna make it uh and so <laughs> for me um the uh, before i tell you the film i loved it when it was analog because mm. i love that moment when you sit down in a film theater and you hear the projector but you don't see it yeah and suddenly that light hits the screen at that moment, everything is possible. That to me was a great moment. And so, if I watch, I watch everything. But when all else fails, I watch Humphrey Bogart. Mm-hmm. It is either the Maltese Falcon, mm-hmm. but especially Casablanca. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, when I was in Lisbon last week, I kept saying, "Ah, the last plane to Lisbon." Right. You know. <laughs> uh, so I think Casablanca is is the best. And the book that shaped me more than anything else was my dad gave me a copy when I was young of Don Quixote Mm -hmm. Um, and the notion of tilting at windmills the notion of being foolish enough to think you can accomplish something that nobody else thinks you can Mm -hmm. and that has always shaped my life I've always tilted at windmills because I believe by tilting at windmills you make the effort to help a country be made better, and that's always been my goal.
3: Let me mention two names in relationship to this museum, Bill Cosby and Clarence Thomas.
1: <laughs> well, I think that um, part of the challenge of building a museum is to make determinations of what's in, what's out, how much. Um, and Bill Cosby is crucially important to understanding American um, comic comedy, But also, obviously, when the museum was building, um, suddenly the words were coming out about Bill Cosby Mm -hmm. and what he did. Um, He had not been found guilty, Mm -hmm. but I demanded that we tell that story to say, in essence, that no matter what happens, his legacy is tarnished, he'll never be the same. So I think that we did a good job with that. It's interesting, for me, with Clarence Thomas, I respect anybody that's on the Supreme Court. Um, But as a historian, as I began to look at the Supreme Court... The story of Thurgood Marshall um, is primary. Um, And we told the story of Clarence Thomas, but it was really secondary to Thurgood Marshall. I know I've been criticized by people saying, you know, uh, Clarence Thomas has served longer than Thurgood Marshall, et cetera. But for me, Thurgood Marshall's work as a lawyer, And Brown versus Board, then on the Supreme Court, means that he is still the triumphant figure when it comes to African-Americans in the Supreme Court.
3: And that argumentation is part of what keeps the museum vibrant, is it not?
1: Well I think that if we didn't do anything that got people up in arms or was controversial, never for controversy's sake, but the reality is history is controversial, life is controversial, candid truth is controversial. So we did not try to create a controversial museum. We tried to create a museum. As John O. Franklin used to say to me, the great historian, he used to say to me, Lonnie, your job is to tell the unvarnished truth and let the chips fall where it may.
3: As Thomas Jefferson famously wrote, let facts be submitted to a candid world. Exactly. I'm Major Garrett Lonnie Bunch. has been our very special guest. My pleasure to be with him. Hang out with him at the Sweet Home Cafe here at the National Museum of African American History and Culture. We'll see you next week, folks. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson,
0: Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanan. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like
3: The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey.